Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I am recording this exactly 30 days before the race, but by the time you get this, it's going to be the 26th. So hopefully uh, we'll be closing on Monaco. Maybe we'll even be there. That'll be 10 days after the race. We've got 12 days to get there. Hopefully you're all watching and rooting us on. Uh, my guest today is Willie Cannell. I thought this would be really cool to record one well before the race and then release it. Uh, and we'll see after it goes because we talk a lot about the X Alps. But Willie lives right down the street from me. He's a USA Team 2. He only started flying in 2013. So clearly he's got a real talent for it. Uh, he did the X Pure last year and just crushed. I think he came in 10th, but he made some really good moves. And uh, it was a blast to watch him do that. And, uh, and then from that result and then just how fun that was he he applied to the x alps and got in so uh it's going to be fun to race with him he's uh he's becoming a really good pilot and as you'll see in this podcast he's incredibly analytical a couple months ago he gave me access to his blog it's kind of like his journal online that's just private and i just thought it was terrific and i thought man i gotta get i gotta get you on the show willie this is really cool and we we take a real deep dive into things that are kind of hard to some at least for me to put into words like why do we do this why do we fly i mean obviously there's the fun and you know just the escapism and the the impossibility of flight with a little piece of plastic and some nylon over your head so uh there's all that but he he really gets into it and i think you're gonna i know you're gonna really enjoy this uh his perspective on life and and flying and uh just how to go through life is is super super interesting so and i think it'd be really fun to just hear this uh, as the race is going on and see how it how it lines up with uh how it lines up with the actual race and his thoughts um I've been getting a lot of thoughts, or a lot of thoughts. I've been getting a lot of emails and and texts and stuff from folks that listened to and really enjoyed the episode on Rick Heatley, the Canadian who went in after a midair, uh, spent a very cold night out in the snow, and uh, a lot of people were pretty surprised with how little gear he had, and was well, they were surprised I didn't call him out on that. Um, we did talk about, you know, I was kind of flabbergasted that he didn't have an inReach and he didn't have a spare battery, so. We got into it a little bit in the show, but um, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you know, I've certainly been guilty of not having enough stuff. Um, and, you know, like some things that were pointed out, like lack of good footwear, you know, because he was flying over snow. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the same, you know, I've never been one of these people who likes to use hiking boots for flying. I think it's actually less safe um and this is just my opinion and there are a lot of different opinions on this but i don't like big you know hiking boots that go up over the ankle i like to be really nimble and able to move real fast on launch because i think that's often where you know we get hurt and so uh, i use tennis shoes no matter what even if it's freezing so um, and you'll see me that's what i'll be using in the x alps even when there's all this snow so you know a pair of tennis shoes and some gaiters is is as far as i'm ever going to go but other things for sure you know especially if you're if you're flying xc you know the one that i know you guys are all sick of me here talking about the inreach but you know when i heard that he didn't have an inreach i just 
I don't even like flying with people that don't have an inReach. It just drives me crazy, you know. We had a, a very good friend of mine the other day, just didn't have his, and uh, landed out way deep, and we didn't know where he was, and, you know, got back to the parking lot after a big XC day, and his van's still there, and then a few hours later, his van's still there, and, you know, it's just like, we were kind of panicked like you know is he okay should we go should we call search and rescue should we call 911 what do we do should we launch again and look around because we kind of knew the area that he was in you know a simple inreach would just we'd know exactly where he was and we could message him so anyway that's the number one but the other thing too is um i think it's a really good idea chris weagle reached out as as did a number of others and said hey man well, you know i was surprised he didn't have x and x and x so i've put together a little list um you know like when i fly here in sun valley i've got like a light sleeping bag you know it's not gonna you know do it in the middle of winter but it'll certainly keep you more comfortable if you got to stay in the night out i've always got extra food i've always got extra water if not extra water you know some tablets or something but it's also a really good idea to have some kind of kit that fits where you're flying you know first aid your first aid should always have some pretty decent painkillers in it in case there's some trauma um you want to have like some dental floss you want to have like some tree a tree kit you want to have a knife uh you know depending on the again depending on the terrain like you might want a knife with a little saw so you can deal with branches or something um what else let's see you want to have definitely a, a, a flashlight you know or headlamp you know with good batteries i always take my batteries and reverse them so the button can be pushed when it's in my kit uh you want to be thinking about your radio you got to have a spare battery because what if you what if your phone goes down then those in reaches get pretty hard to to utilize you got to have cables uh to power up stuff you know maybe if you're maybe if you've got the space you've got a little solar panel you know where you can do you know you can uh, charge your batteries back up uh trekking poles you got to have you know depending on where you are maybe your first aid kit's got like some snake bite stuff in it and that was one of the things that i learned from chris that was that's a really good idea um yeah a lighter uh maybe some you know like a little bit of lint from your dryer so you can make a, a real easy fire uh, that certainly keep you more comfortable at night and also could be used to signal a uh, little little tiny mirror that you could take out of uh, any number of places but nice little signaling mirror is a good idea again with an in reach probably not necessary but uh, nice to have a little backup so anyway be thinking about this stuff i think you know this kind of thing has come up a lot on the show and i'm surprised people are still you know when you're flying xc depending on where you are um you know there's a good chance you're going to land out and uh certainly that little bit of peace of mind is worth a few pounds and a little tiny bit of space so something to think about okay so Back to the X-Alps, back to Willie. Uh, you're gonna dig this show, you're gonna dig this talk. Super fascinating guy, he lives right down the street from me. I, I, I feel real privileged to be able to fly with Willie and been able to watch him kind of come up really quick. Uh, and uh, hopefully you're all, all of your eyes are right now on the X-Alps and we're crushing, I hope, I hope, I hope. And uh, anyway, yeah, enjoy this talk, see you soon. Willie, awesome to have you on the show, man. This is so uh, cool that we can do this live. I don't get to do this very often. So welcome to the uh, cloud-based mayhem. 
good to be at the headquarters. <laughs> yeah, this is where the magic happens, man. Uh, but yeah, you and I have been training a lot together. I'm really excited to talk to you about. It's just cool that my neighbor is uh, is is going to go compete with me here in a few weeks. This has been really fun, and it's been fun to see your progression. So we're going to talk a lot, and we're going to use your 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 higher you get uh, kind of personal journal that you've been kind enough to share with me as our kind of guideline. I think people are going to really dig it. Before we get into that, uh, we're gonna we're gonna start this off talking about our Nevada flight last week, which Ozone just pasted all over the place. That was pretty cool. Um, but also, I wanted to just give the audience a quick, you know, your resume version of your paragliding life. Cause you haven't been at this very long and you're going off to compete in the biggest one there is, you know, since it's the big show. First of all, thanks for having me here, Gavin. I've half of what I've learned in this sport, I feel like is from cloud-based mayhem. So I'm honored to be here with awesome. you. Uh, yeah, but I, um, I learned to fly in 2013 around this time of the year. Uh, so I guess that was six years ago. Yeah, well, five and a half or so I've been flying. Uh, yeah, I talked to Mike Fow, a local pilot here who pointed me in the right direction down to Superfly, learned to fly at the point of the mountain, and then came back up to Idaho, and I kind of had a – I was really busy on the river. That was also right when I was uh, taking the leap to buy this outfitting business, so kind of a lot of life changes happening at that time, and didn't get to concentrate too much on flying right away, but did a lot of – flying on my own alone up in Salmon, actually that first year or two that I had my P2. And uh, and then I got to spend some more time in the summers flying here. Uh, Mike Fow, again, kind of was my first mentor here, uh, taught me a lot, and then um, finally started to get to do some, some real XC flights in our beautiful central Idaho area. And uh, yeah, it's kind of been a crazy adventure ever since. It, it it's kind of unique in that you you know your job your your outfitting business and river business on the middle fork is like in the meat of our season so you're the guy that I have to go to every day in the spring because you're so hungry because you know you're going off to the river um, and then we we were having a conversation the other day about just like when new people come here how do we get them up to speed because it's a it's not the easiest place to learn how to fly and this place is on especially in the summer not to put you on the spot but what do you think it is about your own personality and relationship to risk that allowed you to learn here because it's it's not it's you know, I, I wouldn't recommend most people learn here. There, it's a unique kind of personality that can kind of grapple with the strength of conditions that we have. Yeah, I um, I don't know. Maybe I took more risk than is advisable in the beginning of my kind of thermal flying when I was up in Salmon and when I was here, kind of learning to fly a lot of the times alone. I don't think I did. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a tough question. How do we make an area that is kind of notoriously big air accessible. And we also don't really get that many, it's not a consistent place. We don't get flying days every day. So we kind of got to grab them when they're good. But I don't know, for me, um, it was kind of a blessing and a curse that I couldn't really have every summer day available to fly, when, especially when I was learning. Um, it kind of forced me to go to Valle and go to Columbia and go other places um, maybe sooner reach out to that kind of other world out there of paragliding sooner than I would have if I could have flown every good day, you know, those first two or three years that I was learning to fly. 
but on the other hand, I know I missed a lot of great flying here, so I'm not sure. But yeah, as far as making the area accessible, I think people just need to come and stick it out. And there's, I mean, I couldn't have asked for better mentors. You know, there, there's some amazing pilots here to to teach whatever you need, really. So it just takes spending the time. Five of 10, I, th I believe, uh, of the U.S. ex-Alps athletes in the history of the race have, you could argue, have been from here, but certainly, you know, cut their teeth here if they weren't from here. But, you know, Hansa, Mitch, Nate, of course, was the first. Um, is that place? Is that people? Mm. I think it's people. I mean, I think that... I think it's def. I think we have, um, you know, launching Baldy and using Sun Valley is is and it has a name for itself, and I think that draws great pilots here. I don't owe it to Sun Valley that those amazing, you know, pilots who you mentioned have been in the X Alps and done other incredible flying learn necessarily something here that they wouldn't somewhere else. I think this is just a really beautiful place, and it draws passionate people. Yeah. I, I don't know if I mentioned Hansa, but I should have. He was five times in the X-Alps. What a lunatic. Um, and I'm getting up there too. So I guess we're all lunatics. Um, let's switch to Nevada. We had a pretty special day. Uh, you and I and Cody, so Team USA, went out to Nevada on this big mission. And uh, and it got it. You got your personal best. Um, you've written very poetically and beautiful about it in your in your, uh, in your your blog here. Tell me about that that day and what was what was special about it for you. Yeah, the most special. Well, so first of all, as usual, I ended up flying alone for most of the flight, <laughs> as uh, as we do. <laughs> Watching you faster guys just heading off into the distance, but um, yeah, it was a really special flight. Um, I've kind of thrown myself in Nevada a few times, and it's always really amazing when it works. I think you know one thing I learned after that flight was it's so important in this sport to have confidence in putting yourself in the right place at the right time. So that means looking at the forecast and Cody basically set us up so well for that. I had a little bit of doubt about that launch, but you know, if you put yourself in the right place at the right time, as far as the conditions go, you're, you're kind of, you're using the slight edge to, to set yourself up for success. And that's what happened with that flight. You know, the, it seems like all of the, I guess, personal best, not necessarily the personal longest, but personal best flights that I've had have been, um, you know, some of the easier flights, really, even though being in the air a long time isn't always easy. Sometimes it's challenging just, just to keep going at times. But yeah, I think it was just a really, really amazing day. Um, one, of the, one of the coolest things about that flight for me is, you know, I've looked up at the skies in Nevada so many times from the ground and just thought, God, it'd be so amazing. What would it be like to fly over this whole area and being on Highway 50, just looking up at booming skies and then finally getting to do it, you mm -hmm. know, and watching the town, watching Austin, Eureka and having Ely come inside at the end of that flight was really special. I was blown away by the I mean, I've driven across Nevada for uh, so many times I've forgotten, and I used to live in Lake Tahoe. I mean, I've lived in Nevada a bunch of my life, and 
you know, every time I drive across, across Nevada, I'm always like, Jesus, there's nothing out here. I mean, it's just, it brings me a lot of hope for our society. There's nothing, there's nothing out there, but seeing it from that perspective was like, wow, there's really nothing out here. <laughs> we just mountain hopping all day. And there, you know, at one point I was like, oh my God, there's a, there's a bear down there. And it was a cow, you know, but I mean, <laughs> you know, that's about it. Uh, cows, cows scare me more than bears, but <laughs> 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 they like but, yeah. our wings too much. You know, like, one God. of the coolest things about training for these races like the X-Alps and the X-Pier is you put yourself, and Corral mentioned this the other day too, like it changes your mindset. Like you stop thinking about, God, that's going to take me six hours to walk out of there if I land. And you start thinking, I've got the food, I'm prepared, and that's going to be a really nice walk out when yeah. I land down there. And then you end up not landing down there because right. you have the confidence to go where you need to go. That's, that's really powerful. I think, I think that, yeah, I learned that down in Australia training for the 2015 race, we were doing flatland towing. I mean, you, depending on the wind direction down there, you are sometimes really flying out to a place where if you land early, you could really be in, there's no shade and it's like way over a hundred degrees, you know? So it's pretty intense. Uh, but if you follow the roads, you're not going to send it. You, you have to abandon that stuff. And it's, yeah, it's, there's a real kind of uh, self-sufficiency to it all that you, you really have to abandon the roads. Totally. And, I, mean, I think that's just the case in, in the sport to do well. Yeah. So tell me about this journal. How long you've been doing it? Um, it, it I, in, in some ways, I feel like it's really opportune timing. I just did this review for Maxime Bellman's book that that just came out called Performance Flying for, for Cross Country. And this was one of the first things he recommended was – that's really geared towards competition flying. Um, but, you know, that you, you land and you pull your journal out of your flight deck and you write it down. And, you you know, instead of throwing your helmet and kicking your stuff, <laughs> um, getting all pissed off and getting drunk that night, you know, journal about it, learn from it. And – you know, I think the benefits of journaling have been well proven at this point. But what was what was the inspiration for you? Have you always been a writer? Is it, I mean, this is like it's I beautiful. It's, it's... I've never I never really kept a. I started um, I started my kind of life not related to paragliding journal at the same time that I started this one. And I, I guess I uh, I guess it's maybe I don't know three years old or so that I've I've been kind of writing my notes down. Um, the reason I do it, I think maybe because if I didn't just write some of this stuff down and get it out of my head, then I would never sleep. <laughs> I'd never be able to relax. <laughs> so I just, it's a coping mechanism. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, there are some things, you know, you know, and it, there's some, I like to, I like to do my best and try to get better at the things that I'm dedicating my time to. It's, it's probably all kind of related to this sort of phase of my life where I'm realizing how fast time is slipping by and, and I, I want to do something about that. But, you know, it's also kind of a trip because the, I write all this stuff down and I write everything I, I can that I think I need to, to be better and then kind of realize that you can't really like attach to any of it if you really want to get better. You know, it's good to make these notes and to learn from them and they do apply in some instances. But really, um, really to kind of to be a master of anything, you have to sort of know it and then set it aside and kind of know when to touch in with some of that stuff. And so, yeah, having a journal helps me do that. Do you do you have any kind of a schedule when you go back to it or do you just go back to it when you need to? No, I don't. Um, no, it's mostly 
I mean, I go back to it occasionally if there's, you know, a piece of information in there that I know is irrelevant to what I what I want to know in that moment. But, you know, I'll refer to it for information. But usually it's it's just a it's a resource for putting stuff down, not not taking stuff back out of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you do you credit um, how you've gotten good really fast in, in, a, in, you know, not a lot of years. And, um, and like you said, cause your, your job keeps you away from flying, you know, for a good portion of our summer. Do you, do you credit some of that to, is this part of your kind of, is this part of your puzzle piece? Is this part of your success? It probably is. Um, I don't know. I don't, I have trouble kind of, yeah, I guess I can agree that, you know, my learning progression has been accelerated at times compared to other people's. But, um, but I think that's just, I just enjoy, I just enjoy it. And I, I, I don't know how much of this journal is related to, to my, uh, my actual learning progress, but, um, but some of, some of the information in there I'm sure is related. Mm. That might not have answered your question at all. No, no, it, it does. I mean, it's, um, when I, when I read it, I, because I know you and I've flown a lot with you, um, I, I see a, a, a similar tension in this flow tension in you that I think many of us do in paragliding. You know, this kind of this, you know, this incredible passion and desire and God, it kicks your ass sometimes. And it's this, you know, and I, I, I appreciate that you're you're writing it down and trying to take uh, there's takeaways there and there's, you know, there's, there's moments of clarity and then there's moments of cloudy. Mm -hmm. There's definitely moments of cloudy. (laughs) Those are the, we like cloudy moments. We like cloudy moments. Yeah. (laughs) It's not too many clouds. (laughs) So I know what you're saying, but, um, yeah, go on. Well, it was, yeah, I wasn't really asking a question. It was more just, um, I think, I think it's really valuable what you're doing here and, I think this is, you know, the the takeaway before we even get into it, which we're about to. The takeaway is, I think that we as pilots should be doing this. That was that was my first, when I read this, I was like, oh, how many things have I missed because I haven't written it down, mm-hmm. or you know, because we, I have tried to get a lot better about bombing out and instead of freaking out, just oh, what happened there? What was going on? We had it, it happened to us the other day. You know, so rather than packing up my gear, I just sat there for a while. I'm like, what could I have done differently here? And, you know, what did I make a mistake? Was it just the day? Was it, you know, what is it? So, yeah. um, Yeah. And a a large part of the whole, a large part of this whole writing process in the journal for me is um, figuring out why we do this. I mean, (laughs) it's really fun. It's the coolest thing I've ever done in my life, paragliding and being at, 18,000 feet underneath a cloud on a paraglider, but, you know, basically nothing, Uh, but it is dangerous, you know, I mean, we're taking risks with our lives and I know it's hard to be, it's hard to say exactly what that risk reward is and it's different for every person in every moment, Uh, but kind of wrestling with the, with the risk of it all uh, is, is a large part of why I keep these notes. I feel like I'd be lost in that aspect of, um, of that, of that part of the experience, um, without writing some of this down. Um, yeah, that's, that's part there, of it too. So I'm going to ask you the hardest question of the whole thing. Why? I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously it's really fun and that makes it worth it. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, why do something that's that at times could be dangerous and some you know people who you respect as skilled pilots to have died doing? Uh, uh, it's necessary for uh, some sort of psychological health, I think, on, on to some degree, uh, to be doing really fun, somewhat extreme stuff. Mm. For some people, they don't need paragliding. Mm. Others do. Mm. Why is it that some of us do? That I don't know. I have no idea. I, my, I, I have always suspected that more people should be flying paragliders because it's so much fun, but um, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't really, I mean, in this, uh, in this journal of mine, I've kind of thrown out a lot of theories, but none of them really like answer that question. Um, part of the fun is related to the risks, the risk that we take. Um, I don't know. I think that being kind of, I think some people need to be a little bit closer in, in touch with death for, for like a clarity of life of life mm. and um and that might be some of it uh, but you know it's possible that uh, we're just kind of stupid and we really like doing stuff that's really fun and and don't really calculate that risk reward properly we're good at at calculating it but we're not doing it properly mm. um, or aware of it so i'm not sure it's a really hard question I, but I, mean, I think it's one that at least we should at least be thinking about and trying to figure out and if somebody does have an answer for themselves that's awesome and i i don't know if i maybe i do for myself but i just can't put it into words but it's obviously part of what we do what does cat think about you flying and then uh xpeer and now x alps she's stoked about it all um and and i think she's yeah, i'm pretty open and honest with her about yeah it's there are times when it's dangerous and I know when I think I believe that I know when I'm taking risks and when I'm not and you know taking those risks are one percent of the time but um no she's she's really supportive really proud of me and she's done a lot of risky things in her life too like her long horseback rides solo across the west and stuff are arguably yeah, more ass. risky than our paragliding but um yeah if you're scared of horses as I am, then for sure, <laughs> way more terrified to do what she's doing it's than what I'm doing. She's, you know, I, I get more fear around horses because they're not predictable, but to her, horses are more predictable than flying a paraglider in dynamic conditions. Yeah, isn't that interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. Um, okay, let's just let's just tap on a few of these because I they're they're just terrific, and we're not going to be able to get to all of them, but. Uh, one of the first things you learned was from a friend of ours who taught me as well, Christina Croce, words to never forget. Yeah, I don't even know if I so so he said um he said to me once, and it was kind of I think after I got my P2 and maybe I was down there for a maneuvers course or something, it was kind of late in my first phase of learning how to paraglide, but long before I was you know, close to an intermediate. Um but he said never um you know, always be stoked for a sledder. Don't feel like you, you, if you're not just flying off a mountain and I don't remember it, I'm sure he said it you know, much more intelligently than I remember it. And I hope I'm not distorting your words, Chris, but, uh, you know, basically always be stoked for a sledder. You don't have to have some great flight, you know, to, to mark a, a good flight. And, you know, I use that sort of as a way to check in with myself. If I'm, even if I'm totally amped for a long cross country day and 
all my gear is ready. You know, it, it takes effort to just pack the whole kit every time we go paragliding. I check in with myself and think, hey, if I was just going up there for a sledder and I was just going to go up, fly off Baldy, land at the Riverrun parking lot and go home, would I be stoked about that today? And there are some days where maybe I wouldn't. And I just, that doesn't necessarily mean like I wouldn't go flying, but it's a way I, I it's, it's a metric I use to just kind of check in with myself and where I'm at as far as if I'm bringing it or not, really. Have you thought about that in relation to the race, in relation to what's coming up? Because there's, you know, like the other day, you were like, yeah, I don't feel it. And we all have those days. And I believe, I hope I've gotten a lot better at listening to that. There's, you know, there are times now where I'm just like, I'm, I'm in the air. I'm not into it. And I just go land in a nice spot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can't really do that in the race. Right. Are you, are, have you thought about, I will that happen, you think, or? Could it or in the X pier that never happened. It's kind of like, you know, I was just, you're just so stoked. I was so stoked the whole time. Um, and I did a lot of sledders and I was stoked to just be doing the sledders knowing that it wasn't cross country conditions, but you know, I got to just go up and fly, you know, it's kind of like all, you know, training for a foot race or something. You're not always feeling great in training, but when you get to the race, it's a different condition. It's different you're not training. There's something different. And so, yeah, I don't think that's going to be a problem at the X-Alps. What, if anything, have you had trouble with in the last nine months? And you and I are on the same, you know, we have the same trainer, Ben Abruzzo. Shout out to you, you fucker for crushing us all the time. But yeah, it's been, he's amazing. Uh, no, it's been terrific. And, uh, but you and I are in a very similar program, but yeah, what, what's been, what's been the hardest part of preparing for the X-Alps? The hardest part was, um, God, and this is why I have such an awesome supporter. Shout out to Rob Curran. Um, the hardest part was right when I found out that I got in. I, I When I applied, I was like, I obviously wouldn't have applied if I didn't think there was a chance that they'd accept me. But, um, but I was shocked for sure. And it took me a little while to process, probably a month or so to process, like, what, what have I signed up for? Knowing that I'd enjoy it, I'd be stoked for the training. I'd be stoked to show up and do my best. But I realized that what I was, the hardest part for me was kind of grappling with attainment. It was a lesson in non-attainment. I was kind of orienting to like, not only is it a thousand kilometers across the Alps, but also I'm putting some sort of like attainment pressure on me, on myself. Um, So kind of sorting that out and figuring out like my own. By attainment, you mean results? Yeah, everything results just kind of... um, you know, focusing on, yeah, the competitive aspect rather than the experience, uh, like trying to quantitate rather than qualitate the X Alps. Um, yeah, trying to, uh, yeah, b- basically making the importance of the race, the center of the race rather than the experience. Mm. And, um, so that was probably the hardest part in the beginning, figuring out like my own ethos around like such a huge endeavor, but that, uh, I, you know, I've definitely settled into like, you know, mental state and preparatory state that I'm really happy about, um, kind of more non-attainment focused. And Hansa, um, he said to me a couple of times, like how the X-Alps is just the biggest game in the world, but it's still just a game, yeah. you know, and it's, it, it's, uh, um, so yeah, kind of, kind of figuring out what the X-Alps actually is for me was, was the hardest part, harder than the training for sure. I've actually really, 
I, I don't find it too hard to motivate for the training. The only time it's it's hard to put in all, I mean, it's so many hours, but the only thing that makes it hard is is figuring out if I have the time in my schedule in a given week. Um, it's not actually showing up to the to the task. Yeah, I had this this interesting in in 2015 when I first started doing it. I would I would look at these workouts and go, Good God, you know what? And I very quickly realized like the it's just like the X Alps. They all it, they end. You you just all you got to do is start and then it, it ends. Yeah. It doesn't matter how long the pavement pound goes. It's just like you know if you can. If you have be, to break it down to this to just the step, then you're, yeah, then it's fine. Then it's you all can do it. it's all very manageable. Okay, yeah. so non-attainment and what the race means to you. What is it? What did you come up? Where did you land? What does it mean to you? And bring Rob it's, back uh, into it. You said you oh, got this yeah. great support. Well, Rob, like, what's, Rob's what just you got from him. Yeah, Rob's done some really cool adventures of his own. Um, he was my supporter in the X Pier. And um, he's just got the right attitude. That's a huge part of what he brings to Team USA too. Is um, I don't want to call it casual, but when it has to be casual, it's casual. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call it like um, you know. When in the X Pier, it's hard. It was hard for me to figure out when I had to go hard and when I had to tune it back. And he's got an awesome perspective on that. And he has a perspective on like telling me, yes, you're looking at this in the right way or no, you're not. And, um, yeah, so I don't know. It was just helpful chatting with him mm-hmm. after hearing about, uh, getting accepted the X Alps. And after he was, I'm so grateful he was stoked to be up for the task as supporter, um, to kind of figure out, you know, what it means to compete in the X Alps. The X Alps is basically just like the biggest experiment I've ever done with my life. <laughs> It's a big experiment for me. You know, huh. what can I do? And the, the and many of the results are already in because I've been training, you know, for months, you know, half a year or more, seven months or whatever already. You know, what can I do with my body? Um, what can I do? So for me, it's different because this will be the first time I ever, I've ever flown in the Alps. So I have to keep that in perspective. Like what that's part of the experience for me, like showing up to a totally new environment and seeing what I can do. And that's mm-hmm. part of the experiment. And um, obviously, how much fun can I have? Um, how much men- it, it's an experiment in mental toughness, which I'm which is again, like, very type two fun, but something I'm excited to, to push the envelope on. Uh, what can I do with my body? I'm in the best shape I've ever been in my life. So, you know, the experiments working, I'm really stoked about about everything that's happening. But yeah, it's just uh it's an experiment that I feel super fortunate to be allowed to participate in. Do you have any specific goals? Um, fly to Monaco, but also if I don't make it to Monaco, that's you know that's obviously an enormous goal in itself. Um, you know, my my goals are more like to make this experiment work. You know, come out of it learning something. I really want to learn from these amazing pilots, you know, I mean, I, how can I take advantage of Kriegel having to launch with me at least once and on the Geisberg, you know, I mean, I'll be, I have no doubt that I will be to the top of the Geisberg at the same time as, as Kriegel and some of the best pilots in the world, in my opinion, they have to launch with me. What can I do? My goal is to make the best out of that moment, Mm. you know, Mm. see how far I can carry it on. Mm. So yeah, to learn to, um, another goal for sure is just to 
yeah, it's very non-attainment centric for me. It's like my goal is to see if I can know myself better and like use myself to the best of my own ability. Um, but, uh, but as far as like, you know, placing like, or number of kilometers down the course line, it doesn't make sense to me to set those goals. And if it does make sense, I don't know how. Mm. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it makes sense either. Is anything scary about it? Um, yeah, like losing lift and not being able to get back in the lift when the rest of the people are in the lift. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> losing the gaggle. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the hardest part of this whole endeavor for me is related to like leaving work during the busiest time of the year, um, which is, you know, obviously not XOPS related, I think just being able to be over there, everything involved is going to be really awesome, hard, challenging for sure. But, um, yeah. Hmm. Tell me about the three layer theory of paragliding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this was about, um, I'm kind of interested for some reason in figuring out what other sports or experiences in my life are like paragliding. And obviously no other sport is like paragliding besides maybe hang gliding, but um, so my, so I've kind of come up with a three layer notion of what we are doing up there. And if you kind of zoom all the way out, like if you picture these layers, like it's a funnel and the top biggest layer, I think is most like a big game of chess because most of the time what we're doing, the most important things we're doing are making decisions. We're just taking step-by-step decision-making and sometimes you wander into the middle of a chess game. It's not like you're playing the chess game from the beginning. Sometimes you're playing the chess game all the way from the beginning if conditions stay the same and um, and you're in the same terrain, etc. But really what we're doing is just looking at a chessboard and making the best move to our ability. Um, the second layer is, for me, it's, I grew up sailing, um, racing dinghies like small boats lasers and 420s and i think it's very very similar to a lot of the the scale of strategy um in small boat racing because uh, a lot of times those races will last an hour two three hours or, or so it depends on the conditions very similar to a comp and paragliding you're making you're going through different conditions especially involving the wind and the winds are changing and you're reading weather and uh and basically kind of breaking your those bigger decisions into actually you know physically being attached to them you're you're still actually moving that chess piece is part of the sport um you know going into the thermal is an active thing even after you've decided to do it and then on the kind of smallest scale level i think it's a lot like um kind of like dynamic sort of flow sports like surfing or downhill skiing or boating um, where every moment we are at speed not very fast speeds obviously compared to other things that people race but um, we're at speed actively handling our craft and um, you know it's kind of like I, I surfing is interesting because you're the wave itself that you're surfing down is also moving and that's very similar to paragliding and paragliding where we're climbing mountains of air 
and then descending off the other side, except the entire mountain is moving the entire time. You know, so it's it's very it's obviously a very active thing. Um, so yeah, those are kind of that's kind of my my entire sort of three layer way of wrapping my head around what paragliding is as a sport compared to my other experiences in life. Why do you think you were drawn to it in 2013? Was this something you'd wanted to do? Uh, how, and how old were you then? Were you late 20s? Yeah, so I was like mid 20s. Um, uh, well, so I, I'd actually totally forgotten about this until like a year or so into paragliding, but I actually took a tandem flight when I was like 19 or something. I was traveling through South America and I was, I was alone and just doing the stuff. And um, I was in Ecuador and this guy was, you know, I saw a sign for paragliding. I was like, that sounds cool. Signed up for it, did it, was like, God, I'm never going to do that again. That was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> you know i was just like motion sick the whole time and like spinning around in circles and like g-forces on my like frail little body and i was just like no i'm i'm good never again um and i had totally forgotten about that like until a few years into actually learning how to paraglide many years later but uh to answer your question i yeah i do remember the moment when i was like I should paraglide. And I was riding the lift on Baldy. I was coaching ski racing and um, at the time. And I just looked up and saw, who knows, maybe you, maybe Corel, somebody flying off Baldy. And um, that was probably a Speedwing guy. I don't, I don't even remember. You know, I wasn't able to recognize what was what then. And just thinking, I could never do that. And then by the end of the chairlift ride, I was like, I could totally do that. <laughs> and, I, and I think it was that day I called up Mike Fow, who I'd, I knew from other circumstances and uh and got the ball rolling huh interesting yeah. um you've got this really cool uh you've got this really cool little it's not a quote but it's this uh entry called the body's tide tell me about the body's tide oh yeah the body's tide is sort of my way of feeling good about um the annoying way that particularly in physical training, but also very relevant, I think, to learning things with our mind. Um, the way that we we uh, accelerate, the way that we plateau, the way that we regress, the way that we overreach sometimes, and that has negative consequences, and also the way that we sort of have a an efficient and effective learning progression if we can find that right curve. But the tide is sort of especially in, in training for like the XPR and the X Alps, I've noticed sometimes I feel like king of the world and, you know, I've never lifted more weight or whatever, or never just cruised Baldy twice and felt like a king that I could keep doing it all day. And then other times I feel like I'm never even going to be able to make it up Baldy, you know, and that's just the nature of training. Um, and that's kind of when I, I, I just, it was trying to kind of check in and, and be curious about how that works. Um, Cause of course all of this, um, you know, I've, I've been an athlete, I guess, most of my life through ski racing and some other things, but these, this is the first, this last couple of years with the X pier and running and the X Alps is the first time I've really trained for real training. That was what I'd call it for like endurance sort of activities. Uh, so just kind of grappling how our bodies react to stress, but it, it's also, um, it's also, I want to say related to the mind, but that's too kind of distant, like the body and the mind, I think are, 
are more than just connected. It's happening at the same time. And we, as I learn, I notice that, you know, in paragliding, like I know when I, especially when I'm learning new things and maybe earlier in my learning progress, I, I've realized times when I've overreached and maybe that's caused like an increase of fear or doubt or, um, or like hypertainment awareness, which is bad. And, um, and how that kind of sets you back. And there is, you got to go slow to go fast. You have to kind of take it easy and, and just notice when you're progressing and, uh, and tune in with your body's tide and not, and know that it happens rather than just, um, you know, just kind of falling prey to it. Do you have like mantras or things that you kind of come back to that you've identified either through the journal mm. or through flying that you're, you're trying to grapple with or fix before the race? Do you have, do you have like things like my mantra for the X Alps is it for everything else to achieve anything that's, that's difficult. It takes baby steps, but for achieving the X Alps takes baby step ups. <laughs> <laughs> that's my, that's my motto for the race. Um, but I don't know about in real life. Yeah. Going deep and personal here, but my personal mantra, which is kind of why I titled my, uh, partly why I titled my, um, my blog, uh, the higher you get, but with an empty mind, the higher you get. Cause I think particularly in paragliding, like we tend to just fill our brains with so much information and it's overwhelming. And most of the time we have too much in there to concentrate on, you know I mean? Anybody, anybody who's flown paragliders for a while can just sit down and talk about paragliding for days on end. You know, like there's so much in our brains. The big task for me is just kind of stepping that back, scaling it back and trying to have an empty mind and just kind of check in with the relevant things when, when they're relevant. And, uh, and that lets you go higher. What mental training have you done in the last seven months? Well, uh, more meditation than I've ever done in my life, which I think is really important. I can't really get too into that and explain why, because I don't know why, but that's a cool path. And, um, and I think really good for training. I've noticed, I've noticed that like just general mindfulness is very helpful for like the long, the hardest parts of the physical training. Um, you know, like the long, excruciatingly boring road walks, um, it's, it's, it makes it easier to figure out what is excruciating. Why is that happening? Um, but yeah, I guess that kind of pertains mostly to the, to the physical training rather than the flight. Well, also, mm. also to the flying. Yeah. That, that's pretty mental. Yeah. 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 I think the long hikes on the road are about as mental as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's also just general mindfulness is so helpful for me because like I, I realized, for instance, going back to that Nevada flight, I believe I could have kept flying. I, I, I know that when I landed, I didn't want to be on the ground. I was obviously super stoked about that flight, but you always want to keep going further. But also somewhere deep down below what you're aware of at times, at least for me, I think that there's a switch that's like, I don't want to be in the air anymore. And being aware of that is the only way to flip that switch back on, if mm -hmm. you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that like the mental endurance we have in the air, once you, for me, it's like when I hit five or six hours, I have to be very aware of like what I truly, what my nervous system is telling me and power through that sometimes, ideally. 
Have you found any tricks for that? Have you found any, or, or any, um, you know, like uh, for, for me, a big part of it was just food and yeah. water, you know, like I, yeah, you, feel, sure. you feel so okay that you forget to eat and totally. then I'd land and realize I was just out of my head, you totally. know, I mean, I was starving four hours ago and just was kept alive by adrenaline. Yeah. Forcing myself to eat just, you know, in the air and also just in life is important. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, mostly in the air. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, so there's the food and the nutrition part. That definitely makes it harder for your nervous system to keep going. There are two other things that I've tried kind of touching in on in, in my own mind when I'm flying. One of those is making fewer decisions. I think that we get tired if we make too many decisions. If we're like climbing this awesome thermal and it's and it's going and going and going and we're thinking about the next moves i've actually tried experimenting with like not making those decisions just observing because i think we i think every time we make a decision we're using energy and i don't think that we're using energy when we're just observing there's looking at the sky every time you go around take a look at the cloud go around again take another look at the cloud and let your mind rest and just you know, don't exert yourself. Everything's good. You're going up. It's a great thermal. And then when we get to the top and we have all the data, the observations that I need is when I try and make my decision. Um, obviously, in some situations, you have to think more than just the last turn to decide where you're going. Other times you hit the thermal and you already know what you're going to do when you get to the top of the thermal. So don't think about it at all. Don't make that decision 25 times in your head, just like manically making that decision. I think it makes us tired throughout the day. Yeah, I mean the brain burns burns the most totally. energy, doesn't it? Totally. So, I have this problem that my best biggest flights, obviously many of my best flights have nothing to do with distance, like all of ours. You know, we I, I mean I had an evening soaring session that day after we bombed out the other day. It was just as magical as any flight I've ever done. Yeah, we have personal best and personal longest. Right. Um, but my, you know, my. My memorable big ones, like the big flight I did in 2015 that moved me up from, you know, I, I jumped a lot of people that day. I was totally alone. I took a completely, my completely, my own line, you know, my record here all those years ago, there's nobody with me. Um, you know, I, I recognize in comps, like you just cannot leave the gaggle. It's so risky to go do stuff on your own. You got, you, you know, it's, but that's a different ball game. Like, how if you how do you wrestle with that because it to me it's it's almost kind of like wrestling with a demon it's just like when i'm when i'm up there on my on my own it's so much easier to make less decisions mm -hmm. you know it's, it's easier to just go just to do it get in the flow but you know even when you and i were flying the other day i'm second guessing everything i'm doing mm -hmm. he's on a better line i'm i'm not climbing as well i'm mm -hmm. over here why did i go over here I, he went over there i went yeah. i should be over there you know it's it you start just like it's harder to go with your own intuition. And you have some yeah. good thoughts about intuition. <clears throat> I guess to answer your question, there are kind of two things that come to mind. One, I consider myself a complete comp newbie. So I don't know the best way to balance, um, you know, just staying right on the guy that's next to you and, the, you know, the 10 other pilots that are next to you in the gaggle or um, taking your own line and taking those risks. Um, obviously some sportive risk is, is necessary to 
achieve that feeling of like personal bestness, you know, accomplishment. But to answer your question, the way I wrestle with that is I just try and take the middle way, just like be aware of, yes, part of me is telling me to go on this line. And obviously the conservative move is to stay with these 10 other pilots who are on this line. Um, I don't have an answer though, Mm. as far as making that decision. I think when I'm in that situation, I try and think about task relevance. Um, like what are things, what is the data that I have that is relevant to the task at hand and the task at hand in the situation you're describing is be further ahead than other people in an hour. And, you know, intuition is tricky because it's so attached to emotion. And a lot of times emotion is not a task relevant piece of data. Fear, for instance, um, ambition, eagerness, like attainment, particularly, uh, I think those are attached to intuition, but in a bad way. Mm. And we have to be aware of, at least for me, I have to be aware of um, when those task irrelevant pieces of data are too prominent in my decision making compared to things like observing the day, um, like pattern recall from like previously in that flight, as well as previous experience in the air over the course of my life. Um, it's all very complicated. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and it, you were saying again, before we started recording, like if you have, and you, you wrote about this in your journal that what, what's the quote, um, the crutches of enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> can you pull that one up or do, uh, you, do you want me to I find can, it? I don't have, I'm not, it's not right in front of me, but I do, um, remember it. I just, I feel like, I just feel like in this extremely complicated sport with so many amazing grandmasters, I'm just kind of hobbling along on the crutches of enthusiasm. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. That's all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You had this great experience in Via this year. We were down there at the Sky Race together and, uh, you know, you, you weren't on a comp wing, you weren't on a CCC glider. Um, I, I saw, you know, in your writing, cause you did a, you did a write up of every day. There was a lot of this crutches of enthusiasm, you know, like, <laughs> like you were writing on, on, you know, like, wait a minute, this is awesome. And yet, man, am I even learning anything? And you were kind of yeah, like I mean, bouncing around. Uh, it's, yeah. That's weird. The whole, like, anytime you go into a paragliding competition, at least for me, it's like, there is so much frustration and confusion involved, but that's how we learn is like through that dissonance. And I was just really stoked. I don't know. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> just having a good time and flying alone. Like, yeah, it would be great if I could have actually slowed down and flown with people who were flying at the end of the day in gaggles much further than I was. But I was also, I don't know, it was weird. I, the XC Sky Race was a nice environment to just be flying solo when I wanted to. I was able, one thing I was really happy about was I was, I used the XC Sky Race as an environment to test what we were just talking about, about just going with intuition, you know, and just going where, where I felt was right and just, and being totally punished when that was wrong <laughs> as if I will do to me <laughs> complicated area, but direct feedback, yeah. you know, it's, it's, although I wasn't on a CCC wing, I, I, that's not my progression right now. I'm not, I consider myself barely an intermediate really in this sport and being on a CCC wing will, you know, at some point I see myself stepping up to, to a fast two liner, but I was just stoked to be on the first D wing I've ever flown on. 
and to be happy about it, you know, and to figure it out and, and have a great glide rate. Never exclude continuations that were wrong before a condition changed. Describe that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I think about that one a lot because I think a mistake I make often is I'll launch Baldy I'll, or wherever, I'll fly for an hour or two. And then often I feel like after a couple hours of a cross-country flight, which hopefully is, is kind of towards the beginning still of a long day, um, things usually change. Like rarely will conditions stay the same for more than a couple hours in, you know, just kind of vaguely speaking, um, or usually after a couple hours, you have entered into an area, unless you're doing a triangle, um, that is working differently than where you started. And I tend to, I've made the mistake in the past of collecting all this data in my mind and observations and, um, and learning from the day, you know, patterns of the day and, and just like Velcroing to it and that ending up like using that as, you know, the first hour or two of the flight as the source for answers of what I need to do in the next part of the flight. So I guess what that quote means to me is things are going to change in almost any cross-country paragliding flight. Don't make the mistake of only using what you, what has worked so far in that flight. You have to be nimble. have to be nimble. I like that. How does someone who has not flown in the Alps, um, you did the X period last year and you hadn't flown in the Pyrenees either. So you, that must be a, that, that had to have it's been. a pattern now. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> it also had to have been confidence building because you did really well there. But how do you, how do you prepare? Because when I rewind and I go back to 2015, that was one of the things I wasn't very stressed about because I'd flown a lot in the Alps, nothing like the Europeans, but, um, Tell me about that side of the preparation, the the logistical side, because I think a lot of listeners are obviously not going to do the X Alps, but a lot of people want to know what you need to know to go to the Alps and have fun. Yeah, I guess um, I don't really know. I mean, what I've what I'm doing is, um, you know, essentially essentially to bolster my absolute inexperience in the Alps. I'm just um, memorizing maps in my own way um and uh but kind of in a zoomed out way you know looking at regions rather than like specific areas too much um i I know that a huge disadvantage for me will be not knowing the complex winds of the valleys of the alps that's just there's no way i can take on that task of learning that well enough to make it work even closer. I've given up on that. My strategy is different. It's a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more zoomed out and just trusting that Rob and I will be able to figure out and enjoy the process of figuring out what to do when we come to each kind of different complex scenario, uh, as far as like the flying is concerned. Do you have any I asked you about what scares you the most, but I want to want to go back there, maybe in a, in a different from a different viewpoint. Um, maybe maybe this isn't the same because you did the X Pierce, so you kind of know. But when I went into twenty fifteen, like my biggest fear was I was able to kind of shelve the physical side because I had Ben, and he mm-hmm. was like, "If you do the work, you're going to be okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna have you prepared for this." Because mm-hmm. I was really worried about that beforehand with my knees and my history of skiing and stuff. So my knees were trashed, but, um, 
I just had no idea. Like, am I going to be eliminated first or am I going to be good That's at this? That's fear I of no, mine. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. Does that scare you? Um, yes, but not in the not in like the form of like I'm getting eliminated dun 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 like race is <laughs> over the, the the fear for me is that I will have missed out on the experience of getting to go further into the Alps in the race environment you know um, yeah but that's easy to fix you just Dave Turner you just keep going you don't have yeah. to stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally um, uh, yeah I don't know um, yes I mean doing poorly is a fear um but not a not a big one i i don't have a lot of fears about the x alps i have um mostly excitement you know it's weird most of my fears are about uh leaving uh, like my business is way more stressful going to the <laughs> going to the alps to fly my paraglider for three weeks right in the meat of the season, season of yeah that you know which is what my livelihood is is far more stressful than anything in the excels maybe it shouldn't be maybe there are things that i'm not that i'm overlooking about the excels that i should be more concerned about but i think i've thought about it all mm. i'm going to ask you we're going to finish on these uh i've been doing this the last couple of shows they're called they're like well sam harris called they're not mine but i've, I've tweaked them for pilots they're kind of like rapid fire questions and but that doesn't mean you have to answer them fast okay or short you can you know give us a story if you want but i think these i just like to ask you these i think they'll be fun if you had one piece of advice for someone to succeed as a pilot what would it be oh god that's a broad question um i'm assuming you're talking about someone who's just learning no just it in general be, to yeah. succeed yeah um and of course, success is defined by everybody independently. But probably focusing on, for me, based on my experience, the way I answer that question is focusing on, like knowing how to use your own, your own tools, like knowing yourself, figuring out what your weapon is. You know, and by weapon, I don't mean like just what you're really good at. Also, like, you know, what makes you enjoy flying because that's you can't. It, you absolutely cannot succeed in this sport unless you're enjoying the progression. So if there's something that's like blocking that, like fear that you might not even know about, you know, you might just be kind of totally blocking it out. It's still inhibiting you. Um, looking inside, looking inside of yourself. That's my answer. This isn't on my card here as a question, but how do you view fear? Oh, I have a very complicated, complex way of viewing fear. Um, just because I don't know what it is exactly. And so I, I have a lot of theories about it, but particularly related to paragliding, I think that there are a number of layers of fear. I think that we, so first of all, before you launch, there is relevant fear. Like we have relevant fear when we look at the forecast and the conditions and we decide to launch or not to launch. That's, that's a helpful fear. Like, okay, if I launch in these conditions, I might die good fear. <clears throat> Almost all of the fear that we experience after that point in the air, I think is pretty irrelevant. And it makes sense that we have it because we're human beings and we're strapping ourselves into ultralight climbing harnesses and tying it with 0.8 millimeter lines to nylon and going to 18,000 feet. Fear. Stop it. It's just too ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes sense we'd have fear. And so, yes, yeah, I, I I think I think we 
have kind of like, for me, I've experienced like an umbrella, diffused umbrella of agoraphobia, just like fear of helplessness and like complete removal, which is also something I enjoy about paragliding. But it's also, there's a fear involved there. And I think probably a lot of people experience that like basic human fear of being out on the prairie with the lions, you know? Um, we have the same thing in the air. We're exposed to conditions that our nervous system for hundreds of thousands of years, if you believe in that kind of thing, like science is saying you're going to die. You know, you're going to get eaten by a lion if you don't find a tree. So we have to deal with that. And I think we're super exposed to it when we're flying, even though we don't know it. And I, I have like kind of tried to be aware of that in my mind so that I can set it aside. Like usually, usually like championing fear is just about for me like recognizing it and being like oh that's what it is oh oh that's fear instead of just like experiencing the byproducts of it the other kind of aspects of fear for me in the air because paragliding can get quite intense at times and um you know it's very active like we're being you know if you if you go to a kid and you just start shaking them they're going to experience fear. And that's basically what we're doing up there. We're just getting tossed around by invisible air, you know, so that physically comes into contact with our nervous system. Um, so just being aware of that, like getting rocked around can result in fear and that's okay. Like, you know, I don't, I've never felt like, oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling fear. I should not be feeling that, you know, you have to just be aware that like, okay, that's what's happening. And it's irrelevant to the decision I need to make at the top of this thermal. And then I also think that there are some kind of like unexplained fears that we have that we hold inside of our body. For me, like I notice in my lower back and my breath uh, is a, sp a place where I, we, I hold a lot of fear. And as soon as I can be aware of that and just like breathe and just like relax my lower back, um, I'm able to release a lot of it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of basically my thoughts about fear that I try to, you know, think about in the air, or at least just be aware of so that I can put it aside and not have it like take up a bunch of my energy or make the experience unpleasant. Because once you're, once you're aware of like what it is you're experiencing, usually it's not a problem anymore. It's just the problem. The problem is like experiencing it and not being aware of it or experiencing it, being aware of it and being like, no, this isn't happening. I'm not scared. That doesn't help either. Somebody needs to do a study on your line analogy, you know, that we can wander around aimlessly most of the time and not be pounced upon by some critter that forever and ever and ever until pretty recent history would have, it killed us. You know, that's what kept us alive is, you know, our flight or fight, flight response. Uh, maybe that's the answer that we're all trying to figure out. Maybe that's why we do this is we don't have anybody trying to kill us all the time. And <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know, the I mean, part of the power process is what you're talking biological. about. Biological. Yeah. Yeah. That, needing, needing something to, um, to give us a sense of power. Normally that would be just staying alive in a hostile environment. We don't have that right now. So we make up these ridiculous things like going to 18,000 feet and then coming down, you know, and like yeah. that does, I think, I think that's part of the kind of psychological health part that we started with. But mm. Yeah. I agree with you. You talked about meditation. We've talked about your journal, but the, the, I'm going to tap into this a little bit more. What is the most important non-flying thing you can do to become a better pilot? most important non-flying thing I think is just physical health like 
eating well and having and trying your hardest to increase your aerobic fitness. Um, it's I've noticed it just, you know, I would never have like thought about that before training for the X-Pier and the X-Alps, but it's so much easier to to do everything in life if you just put a little bit of effort into being a little healthier and having uh, and just being able to, I mean, your brain uses so much energy. If you can just make your body a little bit more efficient, you're going to have save up, save that energy for other things. Um, so yeah, just being healthy. Hmm. I, I think it's also um, underappreciated that being really fit makes you a lot more resilient. If you're really fit and you hit hard, that might be, you know, the difference between being paralyzed well, let's take Ben as an example. A year ago, he hit the ground really hard. And uh, as I was running up to him, I was like, the, this might be a corpse. And he broke his back pretty badly. But the surgeon said if he hadn't have been so fit, he'd be in a wheelchair for sure. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, so I think that um, that's a big part of it. You know, we're playing a pretty dicey game at times. And if you're yeah. fit, you might be, you can bounce. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think we should not get fit to plan on no. um, like being able to survive something that is, has gone terribly wrong. But I, I do think that, um, yeah, just being more physically resilient in general, yeah, translates over to having more energy, being better, mm. having more brain space to make decisions if the, the least amount of physical impact can affect you. This question is kind of tricky, so take some time if you need it. What negative experience in your life, one that you would not want to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? Mm-hmm. What negative thing? It has to be negative. Yeah. What What bad negative? What's something? What's an experience that you wouldn't want to wouldn't want to repeat? Mm. But when you look back, has had the most profoundly uh, good. Been going kind of deep and personal on this whole thing, so I'll just keep that up to, and answer it completely honestly. Um, probably my parents getting divorced when I was like. 15 allowed me to have a somehow open the door to like an enormous amount of autonomy for me uh i wouldn't want that to happen again mostly for their sake but um yeah mm. Mm. divorces yeah Hard. too personal too too much of a bummer guys sorry no not at all <laughs> no not at all unfortunately a lot of people have been through divorce um <clears throat> okay Final question, and this is not related to paragliding. If you could solve one thing, what would it be? Um, Okay. If I could solve one thing in the world, it would be, since there are too many problems with the world right now, one thing isn't going to affect anything. So I would just choose to completely accelerate the inevitable downfall of planet Earth and mankind to a point where it can start over again. (laughs) If you gave me like two, if you gave me like two hundred things that I could do, then maybe I'd start like trying to fix things and like, (laughs) oh, like stop litter and like, you know, like take away the big plastic floating island. But there are just too many, so just yeah, accelerate the inevitable. (laughs) Dark, but it ties into our Nevada trip. So (laughs) I like it. I like it. 
Willie, that was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, of course, I can't wait to race with you and have an adventure with you in the Alps. It's going to be so fun. Uh, it's just always so fun training with you and flying with you and uh, and getting your very unique perspectives. Uh, your blog's terrific. I know that's private, but maybe I can talk you to making that public for a little while while the, the people, but or not, yeah, we'll doesn't see. matter. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but thank you for thank you for sharing that with me. That was really special and precious, and it makes me want to journal more. So. Thank you, Gavin. Appreciate it. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out we put a new show out every two weeks so for example if you did a buck a show and every two weeks it'd be about 25 dollars a year so way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible i do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors we get asked about that uh, pretty frequently but i for a whole bunch of different reasons which i've said many times on the show i don't want to do that i don't like having that stuff at the front of the show and i also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, You can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, We've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account, of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully you're in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, All of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you so